We're looking this morning at the subject, a savior from sin and guilt. Firstly, I want to ask, what is guilt? And the first part of the definition is this. If you'll notice your bulletin outline. Guilt is an objective reality tied to real sin. The real sin is always a breach of law. Think of all the different kinds of rules or laws that are prevalent in our country. Sometimes the rules are simply the regulations that we put on our children as parents to protect them from harm or to protect them from injury. We say, Ralphie, You are forbidden to play down by the pond unless an adult is there with you. Now we know that that pond is deep and Ralphie, age four, doesn't yet know how to swim. We know that the banks of the pond can be slippery, especially after a hard rain. We know that the house is some distance from the pond and away from the watchful eyes of mom and dad. And for all of these reasons and more then, we lay down the rule, no playing down by the pond unless there is an adult present. So, if Ralphie heads for the pond anyway, because he likes to play in the mud along the bank, that violation of the house rule incurs guilt. The penalty might be a spanking, it might be a suspension of all pond privileges for a while, even uh, if there's an adult down there, so that he learns to obey, and so on. His guilt is due to breaking the house rule. It's not imaginary guilt. It's real guilt because he really broke the rule. Similarly, we have in this country all kinds of laws, all kinds of rules. That's what makes society an orderly place to live. Think of the traffic laws. You exceed the speed limit and you are liable to the fine. Or you are liable to points on your license or both. Or even revocation of your driving privileges depending on whether you were only doing five over or 50 over. (laughs) You know? Think of your marriage vows. They're vows, they're rule. there's rules to marriage. You exceed them by being unfaithful to your spouse. That may result in the consequence of divorce or alimony or both, the loss of property, family turmoil. My, how this country has been ripped apart by divorce and the divorce because of infidelity. Think of business ethics. Sell company secrets to a foreign nation or to another competitor, you'll lose your job immediately and you'll end up in jail eventually. Not to mention the shame of being a traitor, especially if you have compromised the security of your own country. General Motors was in the news last year. That was just a few, (laughs) just a month ago. Last year, it sounds so distant, doesn't it? For selling... Secrets to China. I don't think much came of it. 
That's what they were doing. So we have all kinds of laws. Misdemeanors, civil infractions, criminal conduct. Each carries its own consequence depending on the seriousness of the offense and the law that has been broken. Consider, for example, a criminal trial where someone is being tried for murder. We had that this last year, too. The doctor who attended to Michael Jackson in his last days was accused of involuntary manslaughter because Mr. Jackson died from an overdose of a certain drug administered by the doctor. When the court session began, the judge asked the doctor how he pled, and he said, not guilty. From his viewpoint, the death of the pop singer was due to his own self-administration of the drug when the doctor was out of the room. Well, evidence was brought by the prosecutor to prove negligence. The defense brought evidence to prove the doctor was innocent. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The doctor pled not guilty. So, why all this testimony? Well, the whole purpose of the trial is to determine whether a law has been broken regardless of the doctor's plea. If it were discovered that, yes, a law had been broken, then the doctor would be declared guilty regardless of his plea. Saying not guilty doesn't make it so. You need that principle. It has to be proven by the facts. Well, as you know, the jury found the doctor guilty because of the preponderance of evidence showing neglect. And with that guilty verdict, the death of Mr. Jackson was registered in the annals of the courts as a crime punishable by imprisonment, and so the doctor was sentenced to years and years of incarceration. Now, obviously, he will appeal. But that's this trial, and that's how it came out. Now, God, the supreme lawgiver, has laid down the law for life and living. It is a universal law. It is not a provincial law. It is a timeless law for all ages, not a temporary law. It is a non-discriminatory law, applying equally to whites as well as blacks, to all races, to all cultures, to all countries, to all peoples, to all nations. No people are exempt from God's law. Say, well, I didn't know about it. You, you guys didn't get me a Bible. I live in one of the bush countries of the world where the Bible hasn't come to us yet. Still, no excuse. Read your Bible, Romans 1. They are without excuse because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament demonstrates His handiwork. Their language, creation's language, goes out to all the people and points not to a God, but the God of the Bible, who is creator and Lord of all. Because God is creator as well as lawgiver, He has the right, He has the power to implement His own standard of morality upon His creation and to punish all those who break His rules. You can plead not guilty all you want, but the evidence will prove God true and you a liar. There is no one in this room, in pulpit or pew, who is innocent. 
and yet we protest. Solomon writes, All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 2. Or again, Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Nehemiah's confession of Israel's sin is an appropriate confession to us all. You warned them, he says to God, you warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. Nehemiah 9, verse 29. That's us. That's all men. That's not just Israel that Nehemiah is praying for there. There is no guilt, brethren, like the guilt which accompanies a breach of God's law. We cannot exonerate ourselves. No court in the land can exonerate us from this. We are guilt-laden in conscience, even when no one else knows about our sin. This is real guilt attached to real sin, the breach of God's commandments, and we cannot undo what was done. We need a Savior. We need a guilt offering for us. And that's the message of the gospel. And the good news is that God has provided Himself a guilt offering for sin, which He will accept on our behalf. And he finds that in the person of His Son. So learn then that true guilt is firstly and foremost objective. It is attached to real sin, a breach of God's commands, and that is why we are guilty before Him. It is not simply a matter of feeling guilty when you really are innocent, as the secular psychologists would try to convince people. People feel guilty because they know they have broken God's standard of righteousness. They can hide it from us, but they cannot hide it from God. They cannot hide it from their own conscience, which makes them keenly aware and that's why they feel guilty. Well then secondly, note that guilt feelings are subjective and they indicate a response to real or, or imaginary sin. You can go either way here. Guilt feelings now I'm talking about. Feelings of guilt are the reaction of human beings who possess a moral conscience. That's why we feel guilty. The dog that bites your toddler has absolutely no remorse because Junior went away crying his eyes out. The cat that scratched you when you tried to rub its head doesn't feel guilty for drawing blood. We, we attribute feelings of remorse to the dog, saying, Oh, look how sad he is. He's so sorry for biting Junior. 
No, he's not. He's not. Biting kids who pull his tail is his natural response based on his nature to protect himself from pain, and it has nothing to do with a sense of guilt. No sense of guilt at all. In some of the playground snowball fights that we had as kids, we don't, kids, don't take this. Don't, don't do with what I'm going to tell you that I did. This is not good. We would sometimes cheat by packing a stone or a piece of coal inside the snowball to make it fly farther and to inflict more pain, especially if the snow fight were between enemies rather than among friends. When the weighted snowball smacked someone in the head, it would disintegrate, revealing the stone or the piece of coal. And when the victim began to cry, the stone experienced no guilt. None whatsoever. Though sometimes, depending on the injury inflicted, we the people who threw the snowball, we felt guilty. And rightly so. What I am saying is that animal creatures, plants, inanimate objects feel no guilt when they act or are used in such a way as to hurt someone else. But human beings are moral creatures with a conscience, with a knowledge of right and wrong from their Creator. And so when we do something which is wrong or hurtful or cruel or disobedient to God, our conscience pronounces us guilty, and rightly so. So the question always becomes, what do we do with the guilt? Because as sinners, we're always doing something wrong. And if our conscience is working properly, we're going to feel guilty. Let me suggest two scenarios. First one is this. Real objective guilt, that is because you're sinning, it's real guilt attached to a real sin problem. Real objective guilt, but with no guilt feelings. There's people like that. Yeah, they really are. There are people who break the law, but they feel absolutely no remorse for doing so. Consider the minor infraction of parking in a no-parking zone. There are people who do this all the time. To them, the world is theirs for the taking, and they could care less if they caused a handicapped person to walk an extra 50 feet to get into the store. And the tickets on their windshield are no deterrent either. They just throw them into file 13. And when the summons arrives from traffic court, they ignore that too. Because they have a pretty good idea the court isn't going to waste their time by sending out an officer with all these traffic tickets. They are breaking the law, but they don't care. It's worth it to them not to have to walk so far to their destination. So they're going to park in the no parking zone. You say, oh, well, that's just a minor infraction. See what we're doing already? We say, that's minor. Eh. Not hurting anybody. Well, it is. 
just because you're not there to see the person that needs that handicapped parking space, you're in and out and gone. Let's move on. Consider now a Ted Bundy or a Jack the Ripper, both of whom were guilty of killing many people. Consider the mass murderers of history, like Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. We label such people psychopaths because they can commit the most heinous of crimes against humanity and feel absolutely no guilt whatsoever. None. So long as it is not, it is not them doing the dying... They seem to be able to rationalize or explain away their behavior. They always have an end which justifies the means. They feel no guilt and they would gladly admit it to you. Suppose such a person were arrested by the police and the evidence against them was staggering. I mean, there was the DNA evidence they found personal clothing of this person at the crime scene. There were witnesses that saw them do it. All these things were in place to support the prosecutor's claim that the one in custody was in fact guilty of all these horrendous crimes. But when the defendant got to court, he protested saying, I am not guilty because I do not feel guilty. Would that plea be sufficient to secure his release? Absolutely not. Any thinking jury would have to find him guilty because of the preponderance of evidence linking him with the crimes. The fact that he didn't feel guilty was, is, no defense. He should feel guilty for taking so many innocent lives. Why doesn't he feel guilty? Why no remorse? Why, if he were to be released from custody, would he go right back to his murderous conduct? The answer to that is this. His conscience is unable to experience shame. Can't experience it. He thinks of himself as always in the right, even when he does what is horrendously evil. This person is referred to in the Bible. Paul writes, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 and 2. You ever talk to a person who has experienced a severe skin burn? The wound has since healed over, but the nerves at that location, let's say the hand. We had a person in our family, Donna's mother, <clears throat> who lost quite a few fingers as a child because she pulled a hot boiling I don't know if it was water or some other kind of liquid onto her from the stove. And it burned these lower two fingers completely off. 
The nerves at that location, when that happened, become insensitive to pain from that point because the nerve receptors have been irreparably damaged. You know, the human soul is like that. Through repeated offenses and violation of God's law of morality, a person can become so used to sin that it doesn't bother him or her any longer. Worse, they can become insensitive to the point where the sin is not seen as sin at all, but as a good thing, a righteous thing. They sin happily because there's pleasure in sin, and they experience no feelings of guilt. They may never be caught, never forced to experience the penalty of such behavior, and that just confirms them in their sin. The mafia operates that way. Twenty-some years ago, the movie The Godfather came out. And everyone was shocked, you know, in terms of how the mafia operates. But they also liked some things about the movie, and that was the fact that these people had good family ties. They loved one another. They supported each other. They pulled each other out of debt. They did all kinds of things within the family that were good. But when it came to... Others that they were against, they had no problems killing them. How, how do you put the two together? We have the same thing with the drug cartels in Mexico, which have killed 35,000 people of the Mexican culture. And now are skipping across the border in Texas and so forth to take the lives of American citizens because our borders are unprotected. How can they do that? They just, you know, it's drugs. It's money that they love. But yeah, okay. But how can they rationalize killing people to get their drugs smuggled into America? They do. The Bible says this. Here's a description of them. They're in the Bible, by the way. Here's the description. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Does this sound topsy-turvy to you? It does to me. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up the straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against His people. His hand is raised to strike them down. The mountains shake. The dead bodies lie like refuse in the street. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Isaiah 5, 20 through 25. Well, here it is. Here's these people. <clears throat> they, they change the law. They, they change the scenario. They call evil good, good evil. And we sometimes ask the question of these unfeeling people, Have you no heart? 
I mean, it's our way of saying that to be truly human, there must be more than bitterness and anger and hatred and vengeance. There must be compassion. Where's the desire to help people in their anguish and not be a contributor to it? So then there are people who are truly guilty of breaking the law of God, but feel no shame or guilt whatsoever. They are at peace with their sin. They are asleep in their sin. They do not lay awake at night in a cold sweat contemplating God's wrath. They have convinced themselves that there are other people worse than they and that God grades on a curve so they will receive a passing mark. Now, <laughs> yeah, maybe they will only escape hell by the skin of their teeth, but escape they will. You see, the hardened heart is also the deceived heart. Satan would have it no other way since he is the murderer behind their seared conscience. People with real guilt, with real sin, but with no feelings of guilt, there is that scenario. And part of their sin is self-deception. And what a delusion it is. I don't know if we have anybody here in that category. But it's easy to get into that category because we begin to take our sin lightly and we begin to categorize it by comparing ourselves with others on the horizontal plane and not with God who is the lawgiver, perfect in holiness. Consider a second scenario, however. And these are people who feel, feel guilty, but they're innocent as to sin but they feel guilty. These are people who are victims of sin perpetrated against them, or they are people who have been taught wrongly as to what constitutes sin, and so they live their lives feeling guilty about a number of things that God has not forbidden. I'm thinking in the area of Christian liberty here. Now the previous group who sin and don't have any guilt about it, they have a seared conscience, and so nothing bothers them. Nothing wicked bothers them. But this second group has an overly sensitive conscience, meaning everything bothers them. Even things that shouldn't bother them, bother them. Joseph is one of the classic examples. As a young man, a teenager of 17, his brothers became jealous of him because of two things. Number one, his spiritual insight, his dreams, which foretold a day coming in which they, his older brothers, would bow down and serve him. Oh boy, they couldn't take that. So they hated him for it. And secondly, because Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, their father, over the older brothers. And so Joseph was given special privileges and honors. They didn't like that. They were jealous. So they conspired against him. They threw him into a pit to contain him. And then they sold him to Midianite merchants who were en route to Egypt. 
who in turn put him on the slave auction block, and he ended up in Potiphar's house, who was captain of Pharaoh's guard. Now, while some things improved for Joseph, other things didn't. His business savvy made Potiphar wealthy, so he was promoted to household manager. But while Potiphar was away on a business trip, his wife made sexual advances towards Joseph. But when he refused, not only once, but again and again, because she kept coming at him, she arranged for the other household servants to be gone on a certain day. And when they were gone, she grabbed Joseph saying, Come to bed with me. Genesis 39, verse 12. Well, Joseph fled the house, leaving his outer tunic behind, which... Potiphar's wife used to spin the lie that Joseph had come to her bedchamber to assault her. Potiphar believed the lie and threw Joseph into Pharaoh's dungeon dedicated to political prisoners. There he excelled once more because God did bless him. But there he also stayed for more than two years until Pharaoh noticed him and elevated him to vice-regent. Genesis 41, 46 says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, figure it out. He was sold into slavery, age 17. He was elevated to Pharaoh's service, age 30. 13 years all total as a slave, firstly in Potiphar's house, and then his time in the dungeon. That's a long time to be under the thumb of God. And all of this as the result of the favoritism of Jacob towards Joseph, the hatred and jealousy of his brothers, the lie of Potiphar's wife, the anger of Potiphar over the lie, the forgetfulness of the cupbearer whose memory lapse forgot to inform Pharaoh of all these injustices until Pharaoh himself needed his dream interpreted. Where was God in all this? Oh yeah, we are told that God blessed Joseph in all of these circumstances, but you know what? God did not rescue him. He didn't. He allowed him to be abused physically by his brothers treated as a slave by the Midianites, sold as a piece of meat in the marketplace, elevated and then debased by Potiphar's, uh, Potiphar because of a, of a lie, betrayed by the cupbearer who shared a prison cell. His journey was down, down, down for 13 years. If anyone was a victim of the sins of others, it was Joseph. We're not told that Joseph felt guilty because of all this, nor that he railed against God. But undoubtedly he was filled with the why questions. Much like Job to name another man whom God did not rescue from hurt and anger. Have these questions ever come to you? Why has this happened to me? 
Why has God suddenly disappeared? Why has there been no rescue? Why has this gone on so long without resolution? Why am I being punished for something I didn't do? Why, why, why? Brethren, the why questions will kill you if you let them. They will. The why questions will make you angry and bitter and callous and stubborn because very frankly, as in the case of Joseph and Job, God will not necessarily give you an answer. What is more, He doesn't owe you an answer. The guilt you feel as a victim is unwarranted. There is no sin on your part. Just the sin others have done to you. And if anyone should feel guilty, it should be those who have abused you or slandered you or mistreated you or maligned your good reputation. But there's no shame to you as a victim unless you turn these ills towards God and others in bitterness and in anger. You see, God has a plan of victory for you as He did for Joseph and for Job. And we have it stated in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul writes, No temptation, no trial has seized you except what is common to man. You're not unique. What Paul is saying. And he goes on. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know what that verse tells me? It tells me that God is not out to break you, but He's out to make you stand strong and build character into you through your trials. Oh, and one thing more. Paul writes, all this is for your benefit. Oh, really? I don't know about that. Yes, all these things are for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. You want to bring glory to God? Have you ever thought that suffering unjustly does that? Let me read on. Therefore we do not lose heart, says Paul. Though outwardly we are wasting away. See, he's in trouble. Because I'm going through it. Outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory. That far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know 
that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, here it is, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15 and following. What is painful? What is humiliating? What is scandalous to you? May very well overflow to the glory of God depending on how you handle it, how you view it. And it is obtaining for you an eternal weight of glory. God has, does not have a blind eye to your suffering, to you being the victim of false accusations and of scandalous behavior and so forth. Now that brings us then to the only remedy for true guilt. Number one, here's the remedy. First part of it. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty as a lawbreaker before God. And you must admit it. That's the starting point. To deny it is to call God a liar. Who declares, and here, here it is, all have turned away. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. By God's definition, of course. Not even one. Romans 3, verse 12. Or again, if we claim to be without sin, writes the Apostle John, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. Two verses later he adds, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. 1 John 1 and verse 10. These texts are not talking about guilt feelings, but about real guilt as sinners, as lawbreakers. And even so, if our conscience is active and not cauterized, not callous, we will feel the guilt and we will wish to be free of it. We will wish to be free of the sin. And when we're free of the sin, the guilt feelings will dissipate as well. So we begin with confession and repentance. We are all sinners by birth and by choice and by practice, and we must renounce this behavior before God. That's the first step towards healing. There are no exceptions. Now we know, I'm reading scripture, that what things soever the law says to us, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become Guilty, guilty, guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, 19 and 20. What is he saying? He's saying that God's law exposes sin. God says, don't do such and such. Well, we go and do it. Anyway. Or, or, God's law says, do this. And we say, ah, no way am I doing that. Sin is always a breach of God's law. 
It began with Adam and Eve, and it continues on with their offspring. The law wasn't given to save us. The law was given to say, you're a sinner, and you cannot save yourself. You're guilty. You cannot remove your own guilt. Every thought, your breath, your activities, are they for the glory of God? No, then you're sinning. Whatever is not of faith is sin, the Bible teaches. If we're not doing it because of faith in God, we're sinning. Our ledger is a lot blacker than we think. We just deceive ourselves and we're like the Pharisees who painted the outside of the sepulchers with whitewash. And Jesus says, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's really good, guys. You are like whitewashed sepulchers that look wonderful on the outside, glistening in the noonday sun, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Inside you stink. Inside is decaying, rotting flesh. That's what, you want to look good on the outside, but inside you don't want to be touched. But that's where you need to be touched. That's where we need to be touched. And so we begin dealing with guilt by repentance. Secondly, God has a guilt offering for, his, for sin. We have guilt, so we need an offering to placate God. And that guilt offering is His Son, Jesus. If you look in the book of Leviticus, and we'll probably look at some of this next week, it's full of many references to the sacrifice of rams as a guilt offering to the Lord for Israel when they sin. When you sin, you bring a ram, and it's called a guilt offering. But we know from last week's study that the blood of animals, their sacrifices cannot, cannot take away sin. Hebrews 10, verse 4. God demanded something more perfect, more precious. Bring the animals temporarily, yes, okay. But bless your heart, the animals don't take away sin. Their sacrifice doesn't take away sin. Something better is necessary. We find that in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, his son, to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Christ, our guilt offering. Did you know that Jesus' death was especially designed to deal with your guilt and the sin that causes it? Your guilt has been atoned for. God now pronounces all believers not guilty. And there's no appeal by the prosecutors. Paul says, who has laid a charge against God's elect? It is God who's justified. You know, you get justified in His court. That's it. We have the Supreme Court of the Michigan state. Every state has its state Supreme Court. And then if you don't like their judgment, you can appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Well, let me tell you, here is the most Supreme Court. 
And if the God of the universe pronounces you not guilty, then you're not under the consequence of that sin. If a person is so declared, there is no penalty of the law that can apply. Listen now to how Paul explains this. In that same text, Romans 3 verse 19, where he said, All the world is guilty before God for breaking His law. He goes on to say this, But now, now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption. A redemption is a, a ransom payment that is paid for someone that's held captive. So Christ paid that redemption, that ransom payment, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Romans 3, 21 through 25. Propitiation. Wow, there's a... <laughs> There's a $64 million word, isn't it? Hardly have that, hear that word anymore. What is propitiation? It's an atoning sacrifice that satiates or quenches God's wrath. Whoa. It is an appeasement that puts out the fire. Paul says of the believers, we were not destined for wrath. We're destined for life eternal. That doesn't mean we were innocent. It just means that we've accepted God's guilt offering for sin, Jesus Christ. There is a river flowing from Mount Calvary that puts out the fire. Let me read it for you. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Psalm 46. One to five. You are Zion. You're Jerusalem. You are the bride of Christ that drinks of that river. You wash in this stream. You wash in the blood of Calvary. And all your sins and all your guilt will be forgiven. The angelic explanation to John of the people that he saw in the Revelation was this. These, John, John, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7, 14. And it's not talking about outer garments. It's talking about their souls being washed clean by the blood of Christ. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Until you are, your sin remains, and where your sin remains, your guilt will continue to bother you. 
what do you do with your guilt? It'll haunt you. It'll be the shadow walking behind you that you can never get rid of till you come to the foot of the cross, till you be, are washed in the blood, that river that flows from Calvary, to make you clean and fresh and new. That's why we Christians, part of our testimony, when we came to know the Lord, is we, we felt like pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress that a great burden was lifted off our back, the burden of sin and the guilt that goes with it. And we, for probably weeks and months, went skipping along in our new Christianity. Because why? The guilt was gone. The sin was gone. We were rejoicing, loving Christ and what He has done for us. You can have that too. Come to Christ this day. Lord, we pray, send Your Spirit to draw sinners to Christ. May You show us the problem of guilt. The reason we feel guilty, the reason our conscience bothers us, is because we sin. And what is sin? It's breaking your laws. It's breaking your laws. You have a right to command us, and you do. You have a right to set down the moral standard by which we are to live, because you are our creator and therefore our lawgiver. If we balk at that, as people do, as we did and have done before we were saved, you have a right to punish us accordingly. Just as all lawbreakers are viewed as criminals and come under the liability of the penalty of the law. But oh, to be a lawbreaker against God's laws. Ooh. No man here, no woman here can survive that. I pray, Lord, that you will deliver us from ourself, from our self-satisfaction, that you will indeed bring to us the great joy of coming to know Christ as Savior, that guilt offering that you've approved to be the substitute for sinners, to deal with our sin once and for all so that we can be free and experience the joy and the happiness of knowing God in a right way, not fighting Him, but finally, finally loving Him as we should. Lord, for every struggling sinner here today who feels guilty because of being a victim, something happened to them, someone did something to them, someone hurt them, and they feel guilty. They have no reason to feel guilty. I pray that you will free them as well. It's just the devil's way of making them hurt in areas where they need not hurt because of the glory of Christ. They're free. And help them to see that if they're in that case, they are to bring glory to God. They are to find a way to praise Him and thank Him. They are to be built up in their Christian character. They are to lean on what they know from God's word and about his mercy and love and his goodness. Please, O oh Lord, emancipate us from the chains that hold us fast. Defeat Satan this day, we pray, for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen.